there, and welcome back to War Starts Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Jacob Graves. Hello! And Peterson Hill. Hello! On each episode of our series, The Magnificent Andersons, we explore another element of the oeuvres of American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, Chris, this time PTA is switching gears from Magnolia's large-scale three-hour epic to a lighter, more intimate romantic comedy starring Adam Sandler and Emily Watson, 2002's Punch Drunk Love. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with his zippy 90-minute romp. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as you always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, guys. Hey, Chris. Hey there. Well, guys, we have a bit of a surprise today. Uh, We are joined by our very first guest on the Magnificent Anderson series, uh, Justin Herring from the Casual Cinecast. Justin, welcome aboard. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson are two filmmakers I enjoy. So I've been, you know, listening to you guys. So I'm, I mean, I'm honored to be the first guest too for this series. That's great. Very pleased to have you here. And for just a little bit of sort of background, I happened to actually go on the Casual Cinecast when they were talking about uh, Punch Drunk Love. Justin was off uh, for the week. And I knew this was a film that you uh, you like and enjoy. And so I figured, well, we're, we got it coming up. We're going to talk about it. Maybe we'll see if he'll, he'll come on. And lucky enough for us, you did so. Uh, I'm I'm very pleased to have you here. Very pleased to uh, and eager to to kind of hear your thoughts on the film. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, you know, before the review, but review. But I was very disappointed to have to miss, you know, my podcast episode on this film because it's very much one that I like to talk about and have liked to talk about for a long time. You know, yeah. So it's just a bummer to miss out, and this is totally made up for it, and I appreciate that. Thank you. That's actually kind of leads us to where we like to kick off things with the Magnuson Andersons series. Uh, before we dive into the review, we like to kind of talk about where we kind of stood with the film uh, before we came into it, whether it was coming into it for the first time or revisiting it. Uh, so, Justin, what was your before diving in? Sounds like you've seen it before, maybe multiple times. Uh, where did you stand with this film before this this last revisit? Before this last revisit, uh, I absolutely love the film, just completely head over heels with it. And it's you know difficult for me to pick a favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, mm-hmm. but this is probably the one I've seen the most and probably the one that's the easiest to rewatch because it's so much shorter. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I mean, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've seen it. Um, so I, I really loved it. But when I first saw this film, it was around the time that it came out. And I think uh, I'm of of the age that I was raised watching Adam Sandler comedies like Happy Gilmore and Billy mm-hmm. Madison and The Waterboy. So I will say the the first couple of times that I saw this movie when it came out, I did not like it because it was not the film that I thought I was renting when I rented huh. an Adam Sandler movie. You know, so... And that would have been when it came out, which was or when it came out on a video. So I might have even watched it for the first time on VHS, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was so that was like 2003 ish. I was in high school. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that 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 was my relationship with it. But on, after many viewings since then, and since I became older and um, more uh, well versed in film, I guess I've appreciated the film a lot more. So now I'm at the point where I love it 
prior to watching it again for this episode. Jake, where do you, is this one that you had seen before? You're... It is one that I had seen before, I okay. think on your recommendation, Chris. And I enjoyed it, which uh, probably goes hand in hand, which is why I always forget this is a P.T. Anderson movie, to be honest. <laughs> it's just in my head, it's not. It's like, oh, it's that weird thing Adam Sandler did that was really good. And not, oh, this is P.T. Anderson's foray into blah, blah, blah. It's none of that for me. It, it just doesn't fit into that bucket or hadn't before I started researching for hmm. uh, for this podcast. And okay. so it was one that I enjoyed and I was happy to get to revisit it. Awesome. Beautiful. And what about you, Peterson? So, yeah, there's my second time watching it, which is the least I've seen a P.T. Anderson film. You uh, Wait, 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 wait. You'd only really? seen this movie once? <clears throat> once fully. I have certainly seen the first hour a bunch of times, seen the second hour here and there, you know, catching on a cable or whatnot. Um, but for some reason, yeah, this is the second time all the way through. I know my wife and I have started this thing a couple times. Um Wife's very good at falling asleep in movies, and we just, for whatever reason, didn't pick it up the next day. So yeah, there's my second full-length viewing. Uh, probably saw it the first time, probably 2006 or seven, um, as I was kind of devouring all of PTA's filmography up to that point. That shocks me. Yeah. Wow. For me, this was. I think. I think when I was on your show, Justin. I believe I, I was trying to figure out where it landed. I'm pretty sure this is the second PTA film that I had seen. So I saw Boogie Nights and I enjoyed it, but wasn't really sure on PTA. And then I saw this and I was like, oh man, like this is really lively and bubbly and weird and fun. And and also I was at that like impressionable age where I was starting to kind of look deeper into film. And so it had a lot of those elements where like you have Adam Sandler as a entryway, but you also have... Um, just a slightly obtuse sort of narrative going on. Um, and I mean, it's been, this has been the one that I have, I've always gone back to is like, even when, you know, I first see a PTA film that maybe doesn't sit so well with me, like, like the master after seeing that, I didn't hate it, but I was like, I, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe PTA is not my guy. And then I come back to this. I'm like, oh yeah, no, he, he is, he gets it. We have, we have a connection, um, together. And so this has always been for me, the one that sort of, I go back to again and again, probably partially because of the length and, and also just because I, I've always enjoyed the, the weirdness of it and the, that killer performance that Sandler gives. Well, and it's emotional while it does pack an emotional punch, it's not as heavy as a lot of other PTA movies. And so it is a, a little easier to, for me to convince myself to go back and watch a movie like this where I kind of have to dedicate an evening, not just like time-wise, to go back and watch There Will Be Blood, but also emotionally to some extent. And so so that makes it just easier to dive back into this one. Well, Jake, with that in mind, why don't we just dive into our review and kind of get to talking about the, the deeper meat of this thing? Is this confidential? How's your business going? Do you settle that pudding? That pudding is not a sales item. Why? It's not for sale. Really? Uh, why is that? I'd rather not say, if that's okay. Oh, I'm sorry, was it like a secret pudding? <laughs> oh, let's just keep it between you and I, if that's possible. Sure, sure. 
Feejoys and American Airlines got together for this promotion. If you buy any 10 of Healthy Joys products, they will award you 500 frequent flyer miles when this special coupon fell up to 1,000 miles. So I think they are trying to push their teriyaki chicken, which is $1.79. But I went to the supermarket and I looked around and I saw that they had pudding for 25 cents a cup. It comes in packages of four. But insanely, the barcodes are on the individual cups. So a quarter a cup, say you bought $2.50 worth, that's worth 500 miles. With the coupon, it's a thousand miles. It's a marketing mistake, but I'm taking advantage of it. If you were to spend three thousand dollars, that would get you a million frequent flyer miles. You would never have to pay for a ticket the rest of your life. So you, you bought all that pudding so that you could get frequent flyer miles. I know. Yes. That's insane. I'm guessing it was a mistake, but taking advantage of it while it's offered. Mm. Who knows how long it'll last. Too many people start doing it. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. So Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas Anderson's follow-up to Magnolia, which was a pretty hefty, weighty film in all regards. Um, and even though, like, surprise, surprise, I, I loved it far more than I thought I would, um, it felt really nice coming into something that was just lighter and more effervescent and only 90 minutes uh, coming off of Magnolia. Even like I just little, little peek behind the curtain. We recorded the Magnolia episode and the Royal Tenenbaums episode that I I guess at this point has just dropped um, back in November. And as a result of having a new child and things, they didn't, they didn't drop until recently, but thanks COVID. We have some time to, to do some stuff and man, even like, Listening to that Magnolia review both made me want to go back and watch it and exhaust me at the same time. Um, I think, I think for me, Punch Drunk Love is a movie that I will never get exhausted with. I don't know if you guys are on Facebook or very much, but with all of this COVID people being quarantined and stuff, there's a lot of those like social media lists of like, you know, 10 unpopular opinions or like, you know, six movies I love, six movies I never get tired of mm-hmm. or whatever. Well, I've, I've been breaking down and doing those and mm-hmm. <laughs> I did one probably four or five days ago uh, for of movies I'll never get tired of. And Punch Drunk Love was one of them for me because I'm in that boat too. Like it's so short. Like, I could just watch it. I, I mean, I don't, I, like I said before, I don't know how many times I've seen it and I, and I could watch it umpteen more times, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it's just the, for me, it's the type of movie that I'll put on and be like, yeah, I'll watch a little bit of this. And it just sucks me in. I mean, I, I think it's partially the uh, propulsive nature of it, which Magnolia, we talked about. Um, with that movie had had this forward momentum this does too but because it's also so light it's very easy to just sort of want to stay with it look it's light but uh, having uh, been going through some stress lately myself Mm -hmm. even getting through the first 30 minutes of this movie is like uh, uh it's just pushing the the stress button from the soundtrack to everything else in it. I remembered it being really light from last time I watched it and watching it this time I was I was right there with Barry and I was just like, "Oh man, this dude is under this dude is under some stress." Yeah. Some <laughs> the, some neurosis he, going on here. And and he definitely is. Like I watching through this time, I was taken by just how much he's basically a Charlie Chaplin character. Like sort of the the beaten down tramp of 
uh, kind of you're rooting for him, even though everything seems to be against him. You know, his his seven sisters are conspiring against him all the time um, and not maybe not conspiring against him, but they're like they are pushing down on him in a way that they don't even realize he's just he's trying to, you know, be his own self-made man. He's an entrepreneur, but he's, you know, got to juggle all of that stuff. There, There's just something about the way that he presents himself um, that is like. I don't know. I, I guess it's the and and I think it's also Adam Sandler being in it. He you need someone like him to create this character that can be both um, full of anxiety and rage, but also love and good intentions and um, presented in a way that you still like at the end of the day, like want to root for him even if you see that he has his own issues that he's, he's trying to overcome. Um, I find that really pleasing and really like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's the type of thing. This is when people say that, and I'm not pointing fingers at you specifically, Jake, but when people say that PTA is a little too dark or is a little too, um, cold, this is a movie that I point back to a lot. And, and it still has elements that are like weird, like he Barry Egan is a weird character, but there's a lot of love there too. So first, ouch, that was directed at me. <laughs> I don't care what you say. But that being said, no, this is the thing that disproves a lot of what I usually say. Uh it, I still think my 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 thing that I always go back to is like this dark PTA worldview. But what I what I will say is this time, especially coming off of Magnolia, things made more sense or I under I understood uh, the universe or the world that we're playing in a little bit better. And the first time I watched it, I was like, I don't know why this tiny piano showed up. <laughs> and now I'm like, I just came from Magnolia. I watched frogs rain from the sky. Like it. Okay. Yeah. That is the kind of chaotic nature that exists in, in the PTA universe. And that is, that is okay, especially for that point in his career. And it, and it just is, this is why I love this type of deep dive into single directors or, or pairs of directors. Now it puts context to the movie, not just with other things coming out at the same time, but mm-hmm. in the director's, um, oeuvre, if you want to use that word and the director's uh, catalog of where this fits in, where they were mentally and where they were artistically at that time. If you ever have a chance to sit down and watch everything from a director in, in order, definitely do that. It gives context that you wouldn't normally have. I've got a theory on the piano and why it's there, what it means, what it signifies. To me, I mean, this is always the PTA film that I like and I enjoy, um, but I don't love it like the other stuff. Um, and that's maybe why I've only seen it now the, t- the two times. But to me, I like the more challenging stuff from him a little bit more. Um, I like him just, you know, kind of flexing his muscles as a director. You prefer it when it's hard sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but for me though what i think works about pta as a director is certainly on display here i mean it is about his family bearing down on him and the weight of his sisters kind of bearing down on him and it's about barry egan coming full circle as a person and it takes him falling in love to truly do that, to have confidence and to be able to step up and kind of be the person he is in the end. He would not come at uh, Dean Trumbull the same way if it was the very even the beginning of the films he does in the end. 
There's no way. Yeah. My, my curiosity with the film has always been, you know, that's the first day he's ever wearing that suit. Mm-hmm. And I wonder who he is the day before, why he chose to wear the suit that day as opposed to any day prior to it. And I don't know if, I don't know if the movie really answers that question. I think it does in the way that it is. The entire movie is about serendipity and is uh, John Bryan in the uh, special features on the Criterion disc compares it to a, um, a musical without music. And there are so many things, so many little flourishes and things throughout this that fit that description. Um, I mean, you're constantly seeing these touches of red popping up anytime that he's thinking about her or because he is blue, she is red. Um, and, and so there's this color coding, there's these things that like, to me, the, the reason that he's wearing the blue suit today and here forward is because of just, it's, it's answered by the style. It's answered by the way it all sort of fits together. And, and to your point about it being sort of, um, you know, not, not the Anderson for you. Like I definitely get that for me. I, I think though, I, I appreciate the fact that I would not have expected coming off of Magnolia, this to be the thing that he makes next. I appreciate that he has the restraint to make a movie like this. And so I think that's one of the things that I, I really love about it, even though, yeah, it is a little bit lighter. Also, I think it's a really great entry point for anyone who is maybe in Jake's shoes and PTA kind of scares them away sometimes because generally he's dealing with really hefty things and he's packing the frame and the story to the gills with content to kind of overwhelm you if you're trying to analyze it all. Especially coming from you, who's such a Wes Anderson uh, devotee. It's not surprising this is your favorite PTA, sure. or at least in that top echelon for you. I mean, it's not – this is much more in that kind of vein than something you know, like a There Will Be Blood or a The Master um, or even Magnolia. I mean, it's this and kind of Inherent Vice kind of play in that same play, sandbox a little bit. Oh, gosh. You know what? I was just about to come out to you and tell you that – uh, Punch Drunk Love has been dethroned, and I have a new favorite uh, favorite film by Paul Thomas Anderson. But you know what it is? It's Inherent Vice. I was just watching it the other night. And you having a chocolate banana? Damn, I love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. It's it, I like, and I think it's his funniest movie by a country mile. And this is this is the only thing that that even comes close to it. I think. So what I what I like about this movie is that the things that P.T. Anderson has done up until now are so much, I don't want to say bigger, more fantastic or something like that, but we are not, you know, gangsters or porn stars or I don't know, I don't even, motivational speakers or whatever you want to follow Magnolia under. But this is such a small, intimate story and is so relatable. And back to the color of the suit that we were talking about earlier, I took that as being like a new personality trait that emerged in him and carried on through that. So this movie was about not about him before that. We don't get that 
uh, contrast there, but but him putting that suit on and people noticing it is all is more of a a personality change or a, a change in worldview. Maybe it's because he's collecting the puddings. Maybe it's for whatever reason. But it's about that. It's about the phase of him wearing that blue suit essentially in his life. And uh, also, he was wearing that suit because he had a very important meeting this morning, and he does not have a crying pop problem. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking about him coming off of um, Boogie Nights and Magnolia and the the sort of epicness of those films and how grand they are compared to this one. One of the things that I love so much about this film is that it seems like it seems like he kind of intentionally went the opposite direction, both mm-hmm. in like, uh, you know, paring down this story to to a bit more of a simpler love story with really like one main character mm-hmm. and a couple mm-hmm. of smaller side characters instead of a lot of uh, like ensemble character ensemble cast. Um, but what I think he also does that really makes me like this film is I think he also pairs down his filmmaking and mm-hmm. his, mm-hmm. even like the technical aspects of his filmmaking. And I think to start with like the blue suit and like uh, Lena's red dress, how basic those are and how, color coded those are mm-hmm. is almost too simple <laughs> that like in another film i think that might be bad to be so obvious with that right and kind of along those same lines there's a lot of what i think you might consider especially looking at his other films um like some technically bad filmmaking like there's a lot of overexposure mm-hmm. in places there's bad sound quality here and there throughout the movie where the sound is just peaking and overblown. Um, like when he's beating up the bathroom yeah. in the restaurant, yeah. that sound is so bad and he just leaves it. Uh, there's camera bumps left in. There's out of focus. Uh, I think, you know, even down to like he leaves in like the business is very food typo that he made in the script. Right. <laughs> or at least that's the, that's the legend, right? Is that he yeah. right, accidentally right. types food. Right. I, I just think there's, there's such this like, not only is he going to pare down the story, he's going to go like, let me be a lot more basic of a filmmaker. Let me like not really care about getting everything like super perfect or super, super polished. And, and it's very like, there's a punk rockness to this film that I love. And it's something that I love about some of the more playful, like French new wave Godard stuff. I think if you stripped all the years off of all these movies and just dropped them down with somebody for the first time and said, these are all the things PTA made with the exception of hard eight. Uh, so everybody would identify this as being his first film. Like clearly this is his first one from the scope of the story to the filmmaking and all of that. It's great. But I would, I would have swore that this was somebody's first movie, not in a bad yeah. way. It, it has that, that endearing quality that all of them do. It is that punk rock quality. And so I think it's interesting that you point out that. Well, it, it sticks out to me as sort of a, instead of being feeling lesser PTA, it feels like essential PTA to me mm-hmm. as far as sort of like other movies that, that I kind of throw in that category, are like Jackie Brown with Quentin Tarantino or a serious man with um, the Coen brothers. Like they're films that maybe feel a little bit slightly removed from their their larger picture and they have obviously have things that feel still like QT or the Coen brothers or PTA, but they're they're slightly off. But at the same time, I think really diving into those sorts of pictures sometimes can tell you the most about um about a director just in sort of because they're 
they're all a little more bare bones. They're all a little more restrained. And so it allows you to really like, there's, there's not as much technically to hide behind. So like his first few films are very showy and you can, you can hide behind that as a okay director and not saying, I mean, Magnolia like would totally fall apart if, um, if he was a shitty director, like it's, we've, we've been over that. I'm, I'm not saying that, but like seeing it all pulled back, it really shows like just what his sort of, um, his range is, I guess. And I think it's important for, um, a director to be able to, you know, it's, of course we know they can make the thing that we think of as their iconic thing, but can they also make pain and gain for Michael Bay or, you know, whatever, like pull it back Hugo to for Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Pull it, pull it to something that's, that's going to, or I mean, Scorsese has a few of those. I, I think, um, uh, age of innocence is another one where it's mm-hmm. like, you look at it and you like, it feels like a Scorsese film. If you know him as, um, if you intimately know his work, but it's not one that you just show to someone and you're like, who do you think, who do you think made this? You know, like, and I think this is the same way, like Jake, you're saying that you're seeing things now because you've been exploring PTA's, uh, canon that maybe you wouldn't, you know, be able to sink your teeth into, oh, that is him doing his same thing over and over again. Um, and I also think it's interesting that while he's been such a, uh, such an Altman fanboy, up until this point, this kind of feels like, even though it's really a small, almost two-hander, um, it really feels the most Altman in some ways in the way that it's put together. See, I don't know. This, to me, seems his most Demi film. The one that is most closely linked to one of those early Demi films, like a Something Wild. Okay, um, okay. Obviously, you know, PTA loves Demi. Um, their history is obviously long and storied and kind of interesting, but to me, it's those characters that any other movie you're going to get the Adam Sandler character for a scene. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be your star. And just like Demi, he can take these characters that other movies aren't going to give humanity to. And he shows a really vibrant humanity underneath him, uh, underneath that Sandler character and the Emily Watson character. And I think most directors aren't going to have those two people's leads in their movies. And for me, one thing I think it's really interesting about uh, PTA as a filmmaker, and the more I watch his movies, the more I see it, he's so earnest. He really is. Yeah. Like, I think he's – he is not somebody who is cynical, um, and I think Jake may disagree there. But to me, I think he wears his heart on his sleeve, and he is bold, boldly emotional in everything he does. He always kind of sticks himself out there in – shows really raw emotion and really honest emotion. Well, and I think maybe part of what makes him as a, you know, larger entity feel like uh, he's, he is a little cynical or a little, it's just the confidence that he brings to that. Like he, he truly doesn't care how you feel about um, just how kind of corny some of the, like the, the repeated use of the, he needs me, the Nielsen and Shelley Duvall song from Popeye. Once again, another Altman thing is so corny, but 
he elementally figures out how it works and fits into this this world. And I honestly couldn't imagine this movie without it. Well, that's the the thing that he can do. And I guess that's what shows like the talent of him as a filmmaker is put taking like A and B and putting them together and making C, right? Like taking mm-hmm. this weird song and I you know, I think they alter it with their own sort of music underneath it, him and John Bryan. Yeah. You know, they take this this thing that is corny and is cheesy and they insert it in there and like they just make it work. You know, it, it, it's easy to screw that up. Like it could be overly corny, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of that in this movie that he just nails and and there's so much that maybe shouldn't work, but does. I mean, I think the plunger scene is such a perfect example of it is such a, you know, as soon as you, he picks it up and says, oh, this is an unbreakable plunger. Watch, you know, you know, the joke, you know, it's coming. It's the mm-hmm. way he plays it though. I mean, Sandler plays it so well. And I, I think watching this movie, it reminded me just how good of a physical comedian Adam Sandler actually is. And, you know, when you watch him run, like he's really, he's a pretty athletic guy um, when it's kind of all said and done. I think it's really interesting to see him in this movie kind of being the physical comedian that he sort of is in his other movies, but he now has a director that is going to, kind of rein him in a little bit and guide him and show him what to do. Um, I think, you know, Sandler is one of those guys who, to me, I, you know, I lo- I watched all those movies as a kid, haven't watched any of them in, I don't know, 15 years. You know, the last Sandler movie I really watched was Funny People. I'm not counting Uncut Gems, but Funny People, <laughs> which I think he's also really extraordinary in. Um, and yeah. I think the people who want to get under the core of who Adam Sandler is are the ones who use him best. I think that's interesting the way that he, I mean, he essentially takes the trademark Adam Sandler character from the nineties and kind of transforms him into, and I don't even know if transform is the right word, but he mines him for what was already there, but no one was, was using him for, which is this sort of earnest, aw shucks sort of figure. Like, and as soon as Sandler starts playing that character, it's like, oh yeah, of course, this totally makes sense. Totally his wheelhouse. He's perfect for this role. I mean, because it was written for him, but he, it's very rare that he gets to flex that muscle. Um, and I think it's amazing that PTA saw that in him, especially when he did and, you know, said, dude, I, I've got this thing for you. It's a little bit different, but trust me, I, I think it'll work and you're the only person who can do it. So, so what's the story behind that? I, I don't, I don't really know. So he, he wrote it for him. Did they, did they want to work together or he just like showed up with this script one day? Yeah. Essentially, I think he was in the midst of editing Magnolia and in that time he was watching a bunch of PTH or watching a bunch of Adam Sandler stuff. And he just kind of, I think the idea clicked in now, if I think there's probably a deeper story than that, but I think that's kind of the root of it. And mm-hmm. I think it makes sense too, you know, <laughs> shit. After you make Magnolia, I would probably want to make a 90 minute breezy romantic comedy. Obviously PTA is not ever going to make anything that's just, Oh, I here's my ninety minute. You know, I'll throw this one off. Like he's never going to do that. That's just not who he is. 
I mean, even Inherent Vice, which is essentially a slapstick comedy, is still one of the most, you know, thought-provoking movies of the last 10 years. Um, I mean, Pynchon's doing some heavy lifting there as well, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course. But, you know, to get back to this, I think it's – to me, it's more of him understanding what that Sandler character is missing in a lot of those movies, even if he really likes them, even if he loved all those movies, which I think he genuinely did love all those Sandler movies. Mm-hmm. But now he's saying, well – if you take that and you m- modulate it and you put it in actual semi-realistic world, what would this person be if they have a real job? You know, if you see them going to to work, um, you know, I think something like Big Daddy, which is I think '98, I want to say, is probably the movie that he says, you know what? I bet he's got more of a dramatic bone in his body that he's not using because. Sandler does a little bit of uh, dramatic lifting in that movie, a movie I don't really like, um, but still probably a more interesting role for him than most. Yeah, well, it's almost like he looked at these characters. I mean, I, I think this character is a little bit more akin to like Happy Gilmore or Bobby Boucher from The Waterboy. And it's almost like he took what was like, what if you take this extreme character out of this extreme situation and you put him into a what is this what is this normal guy in a normal situation so who still has all of these qualities of like this this like kind of like average guy but like with an insanely big like rage that can explode out of him you know like mm-hmm. how do you, you you pare that down uh, and i think he has has to see that and to to your comment of like coming off of magnolia and being like well I, you get that he would want to watch adam sandler movies i'll, I'll tell you i made an 80 minute comedy film for my graduate thesis. And that was a breezy 80 minute comedy film. And all I wanted to do was watch Adam Sandler movies and <laughs> stuff during that process. So like if it had been any or have any heavier, I might've gone down even lower, you know? And I think what's interesting too, I think obviously PT is mining a lot of rage out of him. And I think what he's showing in this movie is that Sandler actually possesses real rage and Dean Tremble or the Phelps Moore Hoffman character, he's pretending to have rage. He's pretending to kind of puff his chest out. And I don't think he actually has true violence in him, whereas the Barry Egan character is certainly capable of actual violence. I, I mean, I think you're on to something that I haven't really thought about it. But, yeah, he he's very much businessman tough, right? Like he's tough to – accomplish what he needs to, but it's not coming from a place of uncontrollable rage. Yeah. So to me, I think it's all about that kind of performative rage. It's the, are you threatening me, Dick? Like when he does that, he's puffing his chest. Mm -hmm. And then when Barry actually is like, I'm going to physically harm you. He gets scared and he can't actually put himself out there again. Um, Because Barry, he realizes is actually a little bit unstable. That is an interesting, like they're, they're almost total opposites in a, not a moral way, but in a, like, um, mattress man is very, he is your, like, just stereotypical, like macho swaggery dude. Whereas Barry, he's almost feral. Like he doesn't, when his rage comes out, he doesn't, pull it from anywhere yeah it just happens 
And God, I, I do. I love that, that, that final showdown with them and the, the done is done. Like there's just <laughs> <laughs> like that, that final when, when Sandler starts walking out and then we'll get there. And then he tries. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Just, it's just such a beautiful moment of just everything, you know, it's, it's a, it's an apex, but not in the way that not in your like, Ooh, okay. We are in the third act and we are on page 88. And so it must, you know, it's, it's something it's, you know, simultaneously fitting into this, the mold and totally, turning it on its head as well. Um, it almost feels like a footnote <laughs> It's in, well, in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it has, it, it does have a bit of like a 70s cinema thing, a, you know, long kiss or a long goodbye thing, or like, like, um, an almost like, uh, you don't, you don't reach a conclusion there that feels totally satisfying, but at the same time, it's like, no, that's probably like, he got his message across. It's he's not going to mess with them anymore. It it works. It functionally works, and it's it feels right for the world. Violence and rage and exploding isn't necessarily the answer. Like that's not the good way like, for his character to be and exist and deal with his problems. So this is a bit more of the him puffing his chest out and getting what he wants without going to that place. Well, thing was interesting about that is that at that moment. That's when he turns from um, – it's not about protecting himself because he doesn't ask for the money, which he certainly could have gotten that money. There's no doubt in my mind he would have gotten the money. He is protecting now the Emily Watts character, the love of his life essentially. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, is it before he couldn't really – assert himself and now that he's in love and I think it's that to me is why it's the movie's all about confidence because he starts in one place and I guess it's a good moment to talk about the piano so he starts when he can't even timidly pick up a piano at the very beginning of the movie Um, and then he ends with carrying that piano inside of Emily Watson's apartment and I think the entire movie we've already said it once but John Bryan looks at it as a musical without music the music starts after the credits because he's taking that piano in and he's now going to basically play the soundtrack of their love. Um, so to me, that's the kind of core of the film is, you, you know, that piano is the symbol of the musical element of the film, but it doesn't actually get used until after the film. That's an interesting, like sort of analysis. I'd never thought of it that way. I had always been struck. I, I remember when I saw this for the first time when I was like 16 or 17 being for whatever reason, really blown away by like, you don't see a title credit until the very end. And that was very important to me. And that, but that's sort of like, it's almost the place where this movie ends is it. it's sort of, it is the opening of a new beginning on, on, Barry's life and on the, you know, it's, it's the type of, it's the type of movie you don't want the sequel, but you can envision it in your mind. Like the whole thing is a really great second act in a weird way. 
There's things that happened before. There's things that come after. You could go further with a story. Yeah. Or it, yeah. it feels like a part of someone's life, not their entire story. That might be the right way to put it. Yeah. I like I like that. That's the ending of the movie, right? Like the last line is uh, Lena leaning over him and saying, yep. and here we go. Yeah. Yep. And then we go to credits. This functions like a great short story as opposed to something like, you know, Magnolia, which is a, you know, East of Eden level, you know, magnum opus. Um, It's it's like of mice and men as opposed to, yeah, something like East of Eden. Um, And I think that's really interesting because PTA's never gone back to a film of this kind of small scale again. Um, I wonder if he does in the future. I'm obviously very interested to see what he does with the rest of his career. But I think this was kind of a – after – Boogie Nights and Magnolia, he had to just take a big, long breath and say, okay, I don't need to make a heavy, intense uh, movie just filled with emotion and anger. Obviously, he did, but it's it's a romantic comedy the way he knows how to tell it. I would argue that Phantom Thread is pared down quite a bit in similar ways. I was thinking the same thing, too, so... That's three of us. <laughs> yeah, but it's also a period piece that has multiple sets. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Lavish like I, costumes and, you know, it's it's more of a a larger, you know, in that sense. I mean, sure. obviously, it's still pretty contained because it primarily takes place at the House of Woodcock. Right. And I mean, it's and it's it's doing its own thing and it's not it's not revisiting what Punch Drunk Love was, but it's it's sort of exploring even another element of what he's capable of by making this sort of it's it is a period romance that feels very mature and slow and a little bit older and in in great ways and but still has those flourishes like but i i think you can definitely draw a line from from this to that and honestly from for me punch drunk love is the turning point for PTA. Like it's where he goes from being focused on the large Altman-esque ensemble to the more focused on one singular character and still the world around them, but one singular character as your driving point. Um, and, and that's been a, a good bit of what he's, he's explored ever since. You know, what I love in this movie and the musical aspect of it and kind of this coming down to such a tiny kind of small knit of characters is that shot, which is maybe the most famous shot in the film where they embrace in the lobby. Yeah. And mm-hmm. people are just walking past, 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 past. And then everyone clears and it just lingers on them. And it's, it's a really stunning moment that could only take place in this movie because it's only about these two people, really. Um, you know, it couldn't take place in Magnolia, or if it did, it would feel a little bit disingenuous. Um, and that, you know, certainly feels like a, you know, Umbrellas of Cherbourg or yeah, West Side yeah. Story or Singing in the Rain. I mean, it seems like an old musical in those ways. It's, it's a very, like, almost kitschy use of silhouettes, you know, at least in, like, the rom-com sense. It's one of those things that could be too cheesy or something. Well, it's it's on the nose, but it has earned it somehow. 
Well, and I think you put it in the hands of a less competent filmmaker, and that shot does not look nearly as, as polished. I mean, it's a, that is a gorgeous shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of many. The other the other famous shot, too, I think, or at least the one I've heard talked about a lot, or like all the people that I was in film school with would talk about, was like when they the one shot of them coming out of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, we follow them down the sidewalk, and you have the semi-truck like turning the yeah. corner. And uh, you've got the light on top of it. Yeah. The light on top of it, which is, is very clear. And yeah. that's another one of those examples of, of sort of like punk rock. Like I, you're going to notice the camera. You're going to notice that there's a light on that truck and I don't really care. Well, that's also the first time we really hear that score like that. That to me is the moment where the score and the, really the romantic score kind of kicks in. And it's, I think, the score kind of starts off slow and then builds that really beautiful crescendo. And it that's an unbelievable moment. And I think the other is when he's running and it's a weird – I've always wondered why he's kept it in. When Adam Taylor's running, 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 he jumps and he obviously falls. And then the second he would like hit the ground, somebody comes running out. Obviously, it's a stunt double doing it. And I've always wondered – why he's chosen to to frame it that way. I I love that. I yeah. I love that moment. I have I, no I think that's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's really funny and I think it it plays up to the kind of kind of slapsticky nature of some of the movie. Um mm-hmm. I just always wondered why he's chosen to kind of cut out that t- two or three seconds when he's Pops up or whatever it is. Justin, you mentioned the uh, the moving van, and the past couple times that I've watched, um, I've I've noticed. I mean, like I mentioned the the instances of red earlier, um, where there's there's just moments whenever basically whenever she is in his mind, um, you start to see red popping up on the airplane. Or um, I think it was Mike that pointed this out on your show uh, when he's, he's going through the grocery store looking for Mm -hmm. trying to, and it's when he finds the pudding and he says, what am I looking for? What am I looking for? She's actually deep, deep in the background of that shallow focus. And she kind of pops. Yeah. And she pops in and out of the, uh, the aisle in that red dress, um, which is something I had never noticed before, but then watching this, this last time, it was like, oh God, like, and it's choreographed. Like it is very, mm-hmm. very clearly intentional the way, the, the way that he, he does that. But then with the, the moving van, you see like when he goes and grabs the, uh, what is it? The mellophone or the, the tiny piano. That's not a piano. Har- it's a harmonium. 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 There we go. Uh, when he grabs the harmonium same van or same you know same company flies by when he first goes into her apartment there are boxes of that whatever it is atlas freight or whatever in her apartment on the floor like he's he's building up this sort of uh this texture of this very fake and built world but also like because of the style, it works so well. And, and I love those, those little bits of kind of, even, even if it is a movie that's maybe it's not, 
you know, thematically, you ha- you don't have to dig as deep. There's still so much that he's doing compositionally and in, in other ways with this film that as I rewatch it, I never get bored. There's still stuff to, to go in and kind of find that he has packed deep into crevices of every frame. There's so much to notice. And like, it, it, I don't know when I noticed this, what number viewing it was, but when he punches the wall, the map on the wall, mm-hmm. and he comes off like the the cuts on his hand, on his knuckles, uh-huh. they spell love. Really? Hmm. It's slightly obscure, you know, just enough to, to not be, you know, insanely punching you in the face with it. But if you really look at it, I, I think there's no doubt in your mind that it says love. There's these little touches and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that means anything to me, you know, that it says love on his knuckles. Like what? But it's it's kind of a fun thing, though. Yeah, it's I mean, it's for for me, I I always call those little things. They're they're texture. They're things that just may that flesh out the feeling of the the style. And there are. There are directors who are very good at texture, but nothing else. And there are directors who are very good at, you know, dialogue, but not building a world. Like he happens to be, be able to pack a frame and, and give you all these things to, to explore, but then also write these characters that you really believe and fall in love with and want to, uh, you know, want to continue to follow around, even if they are sometimes a little uh, difficult or obtuse. I mean, and, and Barry is, you know, Barry's not the worst, but he is sort of, if, if that character is written more 2d, um, it would be tough even to, to sit through 90 minutes of him, I think. You know, and it's it's a combination of the way he builds the character and then also the Sandler being able to yeah. pull it off. Well, something like him having the love on his hands, though, it's obviously a reference to two films. Prior. I mean, I Do the Right mm-hmm. Thing and Night of the Hunter, but obviously mm-hmm. he doesn't have the hate on the other hand. Um, and I, I think that's – for a film, for a true cinephile, I think it's very easy to see, well, you know, if he knows it's there – that he's missing the other hand because um, he's searching so much for love. And that's obviously the thing that pulls him out of his, I guess, funk or I don't even know what you call what he's in exactly. But I mean, yeah. I, th- I think he's in just the kind of quarter life, third life sort of existential grind of just everything's the same. So he bought himself a blue suit. He's, L- <laughs> he's Luke Wilson in uh, Bottle Rocket. He's got to check himself into the nut house. And- I mean, this blue suit goes toe to toe with Henry Sherman's blue suit in the Royal Tenenbaums. Get the hell what? out of here! He doesn't. He doesn't. He no. doesn't have the bow tie. He doesn't have the bow tie. No, to, to, he, he does not cut a suit like Danny Glover. Danny but, Glover looks but, damn good. He does. He does. But this is the like if Adam Sandler was just you know tailored to a T, it would feel wrong on him. This is the right blue suit for Adam Sandler. It has to be okay, a little yeah. baggy, a little, little wrong. Yep. I love the fact that, like, when Louise Guzman's character, Lance, comes in uh, and we first meet him, he's like, what's with the suit? And he's like, I just thought about dressing up. The next day, Lance is wearing a suit. Yeah, he I love that. Good. He looks so much better. Such an, like, he actually looks the part. Yeah, but then the day after that, he's back to, like, T-shirt and shorts or whatever. While we're back, like, bringing up the blue suit, 
Uh, I wanted to ask you guys, are, are any of you all familiar with the Superman theory regarding this film? No. No, I don't think so. Tell, nope. Do tell more. Really? None of you? N- not one of you? No, That's, not at all. Oh my gosh. Well, there, I, I can't explain it as well as this YouTube video that's out there. Look it up, like Punch Drunk Love Superman Theory on YouTube. It's about, I think, a 15-minute video, so I'll try to like succinctly sum it up. But the, the, the creator of this video uh, essay it basically says that this movie is about, like, Bear Egan is Superman, and it's about his transformation into Superman. Um, and I'll, I'll go over quickly some, like, lists of evidence. The plungers on the table resemble the, like, kryptonite, whatever, his home or something like that. Mm-hmm. He has super strength because he breaks the unbreakable plunger, <laughs> and he smashes the glass... <laughs> Pains uh, very easily at the house. Uh-huh. Um, the harmonium is his fortress of solitude. Uh, the crash that opens the film is like a crash landing because Superman crashes to Earth, mm. right? Uh, in the chase sequence uh, what, that we talked about earlier, where he jumps, he mm. he jumps like Superman, like yeah. arms straight out, like horizontal fly. He so he attempts to fly. He eventually gets the power of unlimited flight because of his pudding cups. <laughs> Right. (laughs) He uh, is a big fan of DJ justice. He talks about that in the restaurant, which is a Superman's thing. And then the blue suit comes in is when we start the film, he's all blue. Right. And he only becomes Superman and becomes complete through meeting, uh, Lena Leonard. Is it Lena Leonard? That's her name in the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is an LL like Lois Lane. Right. Um, And she is red. And eventually after he's met her and he's been with her, he starts to wear that red tie, which is like the Superman chest thing. And the very last shot of the movie, Lena comes up and drapes her arms around behind him, completing his red cape. (laughs) And I believe he makes a point that like there's a very like in one of the Superman movies, maybe it's like the original Superman movie, Lois Lane right before she flies with Superman for the first time, like wraps her arms around him and says, you know, here we go or something like that. That, that one could be. So, so is off. Philip Seymour Hoffman, is he, uh, is he Lex Luthor? Like the, the money hungry businessman? He's got too much hair. I, I think so. He has too much hair, but he is getting a haircut. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Maybe, but well, I think the the author of that video also makes a point of like when they have that showdown, he's, in a he's in a cape essentially uh philip seymour hoffman because he's getting his uh-huh, hair barbered uh-huh, right so it's almost like a villain with a cape this is like room 237 level of like digging too deep but also like th- honestly this i believe more than any theory from room 237 i almost yeah. hate theories like that because i will never be able to watch this movie without thinking about that <laughs> oh i should have yeah maybe i should have given you a warning <laughs> it, it, it's like now this movie I, I didn't realize it was a riddle that i wasn't trying to solve but now i know that <laughs> me neither and it, you know it's one of the reasons i've watched the film so many times you know since i first discovered it and like it i and i'm really summing this up like the video does a very good job of you know it actually shows you the scenes and points out the things he's talking about um, it's, it's pretty incredible. All right. I, I'm going to, I'm going to have to find this. I will put a link to this in the show notes. So uh, moving off of the Superman thing, I did mention that Barry is a fan of DJ justice. Um, mm-hmm. it's one thing that I, f- I find interesting about his character that I think, um, one of you guys, I think it was Chris said earlier that if this was a 2d character, it wouldn't be good. It's like a fully fleshed out character. Um, I, I, I like 
contradiction in characters a lot of times in movies. And there's this, when he's talking about the DJ justice scene, he's talking about, um, this guy who basically he takes in callers and it seems like he kind of cuts them down and makes fun of them or gives them shit on the radio, which is what bothers him the most about his sisters. Right. Yeah. Like that's what his sisters do to him. So is it, is it something that like he kind of wishes he could do and he gets like this weird pleasure because he doesn't have that power over anybody. And uh, like, I think it would be weird for him to get pleasure in this when he, it ruins his life basically up to that point. I love the the contradictions in Barry. I, I I love that he he's gentle and loving and and a bottle full of rage that could go off at any point. I I, I really typically go for movies with really two D characters where they they tend to represent a single ideal and uh, think think like westerns. Uh, I, I love a, mm-hmm. a, a a white hat versus black hat movie like that. Sure. That that's absolutely. Remember when a movie was just a guy in a hat running from a guy with no hair. Um, but but that being said, I, I I have a strong strong affection for characters like this where it's actually deeper and and a conflicted character and someone who you have to walk away with and weigh for their pros and cons if you're gonna pass a judgment on them or just accept them as is because Barry definitely is not a saint. And he is not a bad guy either. And he falls in that gray area. And P.T. Anderson does a great job in all of his movies of of landing characters in that gray zone. I love that P.T.A. He loves the grays. He loves existing in this murky middle ground of morality. Um, very certainly in that. And I think the Emily Watson character is as well. I think she's also just as lost as he is. I mean, obviously, she has to be um, if she sees a picture and – Basically, from his picture, starts stalking him. She drops her car off. She follows him to the supermarket. She comes back the next day. I mean, that's PT loves those characters. Yeah, I, on Casual Cinecast, we were talking about how in a different movie, this is a horror film, and and they're both sort of like she's stalking him, and yeah, he's he the bad is, guy that's, yeah, like I mean, and, Lex and it all. Luthor. It all kind of comes, you know, to a to a point when they're having like that first moment of pillow talk, and you know he's saying she's so fucking face off. Yeah, like I'm going to eat your eyes with a spoon or something, and I'm going to you're so pretty. I'm going to smash your face with a hammer. Like it's (laughs) they're they're two perfect weirdos who found each other, and it's adorable. My wife, when that interaction came up, and they started their kind of so so called pillow talk when. He said what he said first was just, I'm looking at your face and I just want to smash it. I just want to fucking smash with a sledgehammer and squeeze it. You're so pretty. She said, what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Because about halfway through, she was like, I'm stressed out. Something's going to go wrong in this movie. And probably because she's seen other PTA movies. She knows, you know, more about kind of where his movies go. She's like – is she pretending? Is she not really real? Like, what's happening? When that happened, she was like, genuinely like, I don't know where this is going. Is that his emotion, like his his powerful, like, emotion of love coming out in that moment? Because, and has he experienced that emotion before? Because it seems like from his sisters talking, he, his emotions build up and they explode in rage and violence. And now he's got this huge buildup and then like about to release 
his love, <laughs> as silly as that phrase is uh, in that context, but um, does it come out that way in like a similar way of like violence? I don't think so. I don't think like, I don't think there's anything that really sends clues that there is, there is a domestic violence angle to their relationship or oh, will sure, be, sure. you know, yeah, like, not, not literal violence, I guess, like not literal physical but, violence, okay. but like it, it comes out in those, the verb, the verb. Same the verb. idea of like, you see a baby and you're like, I just want to eat you up, you know, the baby, <laughs> um, which not an emotion I've ever had, but you know, that's like some people have that gut reaction of like, Oh, it's when like pinch and squeeze your cheeks and gobble them up, you know? I mean, I guess to me, I, I've always read it as one, you know, it's, it's just a darkly, it's a, it, it is a very black comedy sort of moment. Uh, but it, it's also sort of buries at this, this place where things are going so well for him in a way that they typically don't. And it's almost like he's, he doesn't know, you know, there's, there's so much stimulus that he doesn't even know how to act or what to say. And he just sort of like, he's just saying the first thing that comes to his mind and it's sort of nonsense gibberish. And luckily she understands that and she comes back with her own instead of, you know, like there's, there's another movie where it is a terrifying event where he says that and she's like, ah, I gotta go. (laughs) I think PTA at that moment is saying these two people, they're, they're meant to be together. Yeah, they yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. See and understand the world in the same kind of level playing field. Whereas if you're, you know, if you're somebody whose pillow talk is "I love you" and oh, let's cuddle all night, and somebody says that to you, you're like, "Get me out of this situation as quickly as possible," and I'm gonna have a restraining order filed. <laughs> <laughs> Can we touch briefly on? I mean, it is very much a. More or less a two-hander, but there's also a man at the center of this who, like, would not – the world would not be fleshed out without him. It's Dean Trumbull, our mattress man, played beautifully by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Can we give just a, a couple minutes to, to discussing him? Yeah. Check, check, one, two, test, test. You, need to you can't do that. It's wrong. Check. Check. I'll go. Great. I'm only paying two of you guys. That's cool. All right, when can you leave? Well, I want you to go right away. I think that's best. And I also really need you to check out a car for me down there that this guy's selling. Your expenses are your own. I thought Letitia said you were going to cover this. She didn't know what she was talking about. Never, man, that's not cool. Right, David, don't. Just seriously. Right, it doesn't make sense if you think about it in a fair deal like sense, okay? It's business, seriously. $100, two days work. It's a lot more than your family's making sitting around your house. Right? I'm serious now, okay? Please, now just stop. Keys to the truck. Now you got to gas that up. All right, save receipts on that. His address. We have his business address, too, but... You know what? Hit him at his house first. See what this little bad boy businessman is all about. It's a kind of performance where it's a good thing that he's only a supporting character because too much of him would probably go a little too far. But at the same time, you get immediately just how threatening um, he is or wants to 
present himself as. And that's an element of Philip Seymour Hoffman that we haven't really seen in PTA's films up to this point. So it's another, I appreciate that it's another level of, you know, he's taking that intensity that he's used before, but sort of focusing it in a different direction. The second he came on screen this time, I, I just immediately thought, I miss him so yeah. I really do. I miss him so much. I mean, every time I see a movie with him in it, I just, it really, it makes me so sad um, that we lost him, you know? And I think to me, when, you know, at the time of his passing, he was, he was my guy. I would have done anything to see one of his movies. Um, I still think he's one of the best actors to ever walk the planet. Um, you know, uh, he's had this deep well of empathy within his performances and have this volatility to him that not a lot of people can really harness, you know? I mean, it's crazy to think in the same year he was, you know, Truman Capote. And then a couple of months later, he was the villain in Mission Impossible 3. And he's great in both of them. I probably actually yeah. like his performance in Mission Impossible 3 more than Truman Capote. <laughs> That's actually um, – that that performance in Mission Impossible 3 is up there, probably top five of him for me. It's just so like he, – well, he, he, takes, he takes a perhaps two-dimensional villain and fleshes it out so well. Well, he lets you know that he's going to eat Tom Cruise alive in mm-hmm. every second. And Tom Cruise obviously is a very good actor, but – Phil Seymour Hoffman is just like you see him and you're like, I this guy's gonna murder you in ways that you have no idea. Man, are you guys gonna make me watch Mission Impossible Three? Because I my favorite thing about all these PT Anderson movies is when Philip Seymour Hoffman shows up. I mean, he 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 brings life to every frame that he's in. He's amazing. He's really good in three. Yeah. Yeah. He's no different in that. He'll you know, he you. makes the movie work really well. Her. I'm gonna strangle her. Right in front of you. God, it's... It's a great performance. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it really is. Um, but, I mean, even here, he's... he As you already touched on, Chris, he's he's big, but he's playing to the exact level this movie needs him to. Mm-hmm. That's what Hoffman could do so well. He knew exactly what the material called for, and he met the material where he should. Um, and he exploded on the screen that way. You know, he knew exactly what material called for. Uh, if he needed to be soft, like he was in Magnolia and really calm and gentle, he was. And then if he needs to be big and volatile, he could easily do it. Um, and yeah, I just think he's, he's so good in this as he was in basically everything. Along came Polly. Is a favorite of mine. I was just thinking about that. The <laughs> only Hoffman movie I think I haven't seen. What it is? Okay, that's a movie that's worth seeing solely for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, he is my war crimes. He's. I don't know if it's a war crime, but he's really great at it. Yeah, from like in the opening credits, he commits so much to a, a, a pratfall that like should just be silly and like a throwaway joke, but it's like one of the funniest like things he's ever done in like all of his performances. To me, it's incredible. All right, boys, it's time for one of my favorite segments on the show. Uh, The one in which we try to force Jacob Graves to find something that he found humorous in a P.T. Anderson film. Ah, this is an easy one. Well, Jake, it's easy. Do you want to go first? 
yeah, there was there was a lot to laugh at. A lot I, I really enjoyed in this one. But I I truly got the most pleasure from from just watching Philip Seymour Hoffman act. He's going to be the one who steals the funniest moment basically every time he shows up. But I, I think I just enjoyed, I, I don't know if it was a laugh out loud moment, but just the ridiculous highlight of shut up, shut, 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 shut up. That yeah. that whole thing is so, it's so big, but it's also... It's absurd, but it works. It's everything there, but that's the kind of thing where it felt organic in that world, and it made me genuinely laugh. It's big, but he's on the phone. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but he's <laughs> acting. He's acting like he's not. He yeah. contains himself. He has a like. He releases, and then he pulls it all in, and then he releases, and he pulls it all in. Like it's it's this. He goes as big as as possible, but then doesn't. Like he doesn't just let it all fly. He kind of sits for a second, and and to me, that's what works about that moment is just the way that, uh, or the thing that makes it feel real. Big, it makes but it not feel camp like, in the least. Yeah, yeah. What about yeah. you, Justin? What's your uh, what gave you the lulls? Oh man, so many things in this movie. I have like dozens I could probably pull out, and and if it's okay with you guys, I'll ask. Can I do two? Sure, absolutely. Okay. One, and, and this is a type of humor that really works for me because it's in a lot of other stuff, but it's when Barry and Lena first come together in Hawaii right before that silhouette shot and he walks towards her and he puts his hand out <laughs> to like shake her hand. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> a long walk with like an extended handshake, A, is funny <laughs> to me. Yeah. Like, and B, like you're meeting this woman that you're kind of in love and head over heels for and this is your big moment and you're gonna like walk out and shake her hand after flying to hawaii from her like is super funny we don't shake hands anymore though no and yeah it's very uh very weird to see anybody shaking hands in any movie right now almost almost every bit of tv is weird for me right now why are they so close why yeah. are there more than 10 in a room yeah. everything is like the equivalent of watching like a 1980s movie and someone pulls out a cell phone that <laughs> is just like the size of their head everything feels like that <laughs> Oracle, so that's 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 one the other one is Luis Guzman's face during the entire scene where Lena comes back in to his work and starts and asks him out and asks him if he'd like to get dinner mm -hmm. this is that is comedic gold yeah just wa watch his face during that thing like just watch him don't even watch the characters like next time you watch it it is money it is so it's, funny it's almost every time I've seen the movie um, or seen that scene I can't take my eyes off Luis Guzman. It's <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do it because he's he just looks stunned <laughs> and he looks like why are you guys doing this right here? Can we? <laughs> this is yeah. awkward. He's looking down and kind of away and like shifting his eyes, like not sure where to look. It's oh, it's wonderful. What about what about you, Peterson? My one of my favorite moments of this movie is towards the end. It's that kind of. Final exchange between Barry and Dean. Now get the fuck out of here, pervert! Didn't I warn you? Th that's that. Didn't I warn you? That's that. Uh, <laughs> Phil Smith Hoffman's <laughs> body language and the way he says it goes, that's that. And yeah. he, he throws his hands up and kind of walks away. It is so <laughs> funny because like, he's puffed out his chest and he's like, you know what? I'm getting the last word in. This guy's nothing. You know, I'm I'm the bigger man. And the second Adam Sandler turns around, he's like, oh, shit. I, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so dramatic with like the little cape that whirls when he turns <laughs> to walk away and his like wet hair and his hand up in the air. Well, he's like a little yappy bulldog. Like, oh, he's walking away now? Let me let me bark at his heels. Like it's <laughs> it's so great. Or like a yeah. like a Pomeranian. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. In, I know it's kind of a broad move, but I do love the the uh the plunger scene is also Yes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's so broad. And it's such an easy, like, that's the big laugh moment. But it's also, it's the score in the background. It's the heightened intensity. And the sisters are calling. He's trying to impress these two clients. And he has super strength. Yep. <laughs> well, but for, for me, the the thing that is so funny about the plunger scene is not just him breaking it but then when barry is he's taking the phone call in his office and you just see louise guzman just like going <laughs> to town all over the place and he can't get it to break and he's just like in the background just beating it on every surface possible that's the thing that gets me no, about, what I love about is, that scene it's, you can definitely tell that louise guzman as an actor is stopping it like he's he's definitely pretending to do it and he's pantomiming the whole thing, which I love because I think it's it's adds to the kind of weird reality of this movie. Well, but it also seems like he's trying to save face with the client. You know, he's yeah. he's like, oh no, it's it's totally fine. Check it out. Well, that was the like, old one, right? We'll get the new one. Yeah. Well, yeah. also going back to Luis Guzman's face, like when like that moment when the plungers are broken, his <laughs> yeah. face during that is another thing that really sells that joke. <laughs> It's really good too. It's just it's so straight and just just kind of expressionless in a way. <laughs> it's like Buster Keaton-ish like kind of reaction, you know. Yeah, yeah. For for me, I like I actually I thought about a couple uh, of Lance moments. The the one of him with the 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 plunger in the background, the one that I mentioned earlier of him showing like I just love that he shows up in a suit the next day but then like can't commit to it. And so he's he's done with it after that. Uh, but for this viewing, like, I loved the moment where Barry calls Lena at the hotel. And there's basically that in, entire extended sequence or that entire extended um, uh, phone call. There's There's a few things that are just so good about the way... Uh, Sandler handles the moment. So like the first one being uh, when he, he calls up the hotel and they send him to the guys, uh, the, the wrong room and the guy answers and just his, the way that he handles it of like, Oh no. Um, is, is Lena there? And then like his relief of her not being like, just there's, there's so much that he's wearing in his body language. Um, that's mm-hmm. this sort of like, you know, it's not super like laugh out loud funny, but it's this like just restrained, like, and he's got a few moments like that throughout so that like by the end I am like just sort of chuckling at it. Like I love his, the, to me, the, the sort of cherry on top is he finally gets through to her and he's talking to her and he's, you know, wants to ask her every single question in the world because he's finally like committed to making this connection. And, uh, he says, have you ever been married before? And then he's like ready to go into the next thing. And she's like, well, yeah, once. And then he has this like for a beat, it's sort of like, oh no, are things going to go bad? And then he's 
you know, kind of like, oh yeah, okay, cool. And just like that little moment, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a whole lot, but the way that Sandler handles it, uh, really made me laugh, laugh this time. And also like, it's a great character moment for Barry because it kind of in that, in that small expression shows just how much he's grown in his confidence because I think the Barry of five days ago probably would have been devastated by learning that, oh, even though she's not married anymore, there's another man. Like in his mind, he would turn it into this competition. And only Barry would think that's an acceptable place to have an actual phone conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my, there's there's I'm an in endearing jealousy to the part with the, like, the other guy answering the phone because – yeah, I think yeah. that's part of him questioning her. Why has she been married before? Or like, I think he asks her, do you have a boyfriend? I think that's yeah. kind of him checking yeah, yeah, in, yeah. even though he knows. And my favorite part of that, like that whole bit with the other guy answering the phone is when he calls back and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for Lena Leonard's room and there shouldn't be a man in there. <laughs> yeah, there shouldn't be a man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I Which love is that like, line. I mean, that's, but that's a line like that is a line that Happy Gilmore could have delivered. You yeah, know, that's that is very much that character is not Barry is not terribly far from, you know, that that 90s Sandler character that he he played quite a bit. But it's just it's tuned slightly differently. And that makes sort of all the difference. Totally. All right, boys, now that we've gotten our chuckles out, it's time to figure out <laughs> where we place this uh, in the Anderson anthology. Which shelf are you guys going to put Punch Drunk Love on? Does it go on? the Anderson A-list at the very top. Is this a deep dive in, in the middle of the pack? Uh, not necessarily one of PTA's best, but definitely one that you should check out if you're a PTA aficionado. Or is this at the bottom of the pile and purely for Paul's Papa? Um, Justin, as our guest, how about uh, you go first? Where would you place uh, Punch Trunk Love? I have to put it on the Anderson A-list for me personally. And I think it goes up there with several of his other films. I obviously haven't been on every episode to recap these, but I have four of his first five films, not counting Heart Eight. Um, but Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and There Will Be Blood. Like essentially, my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie is whichever one I watched last. Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> they just kind of rotate, <laughs> and and so all four of those are kind of a list to me, and that includes Punch Drunk Love. Excellent. What about uh, actually Peterson? I'm I'm curious about you. Um, being that this is only your second your second time around and not necessarily your favorite of of uh, PTA, where do you put this? It's weird. So, I you know the way we rank these is is odd to me now because I you know personally I think Paul Thomas Anderson's made a bunch of insanely good movies that all of them should certainly be watched, right? Um, to me, to me, all of them are Anderson A-list. There's not a movie of his that I don't kind of put as an Anderson A-list. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at it and trying to figure out a way to, am I going to say Anderson A-list on every one? <laughs> the pressure's on now, um, yeah. So, to me, with this movie, as much as I love it and I respond to it and, you know, I think my letterbox D is four out of five stars, which is should be an A list. Um, am I going to recommend this to my parents? No, 
absolutely not. My parents would look at me like an insane person if I said, oh, let's watch this. Um, Are you going to recommend Magnolia to your parents? <sighs> Probably not. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm trying, I, I'm trying to figure out a way to, you know, yeah, I do, yeah. I do want to find a way to break up and, you know, I do right now. This is my, I, I think my seventh out of his films of eight, um, you know, and I won't get into any more rankings besides that. But, um, so it's, it's weird because I, I love this movie so much, but is everyone going to love this movie? I don't know. Um, I So I'm in this weird headspace where, you know, my heart says Anderson A-list because why would you not want to watch a Paul Thomas Anderson film? You know, that's the fact that Jay can come in here and say, well, eh, not my guy. That's asinine. Because <laughs> um, even the movie that like, I'm like, oh, yeah, what's well, the, the bottom two of his movies, I still think it's it, it's incredible. I still think it's this amazing film. So, I mean, I think I still have to go Anderson A-list. I'm, you know, I just literally talk myself out of saying a deep dive. Cause, um, That's amazing. Because he's, he's so good. Like, like PTA's just, he's the guy, you know? I don't know. So, Anderson A-list, Jesus Christ, I don't know. <laughs> okay, Jake, are you going to break the streak? Where do you put it? Anderson A-list, next. Okay. No, I mean, it was, it's easy. I just didn't want to have the suspense. The suspense was giving me stress <laughs> on that last one. I didn't know where yeah. it was going to land. I'm just going to, I'll put some John Bryan score under all of that <laughs> with uh, with Peterson going back and forth. No, it, it, this is Anderson A-list, and I think it's also Sandler A-list. Like yeah, it, for it's, sure. It's, 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 it's definitely it's, Sandra. Let's yeah, yeah definitely like, Sandra. It, uh, but but the 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 question for me is is for Anderson A list when we're talking about recommending it to other people. How do you frame this as Adam Sandler's in this movie? But no, it's really good and serious. So don't expect the Water Boy to show up. Like I I don't know how you can frame it the right way for people, but just on its merits, I mean it's it's clearly an A list. It's a really well, um, really good movie. We mentioned the Water Boy about fifteen times this episode. So I went to the Waterboy, I think, like, when I, opening night, my parents took, like, me and, like, five friends, which is weird because my parents never did that kind of thing, but we were, like, 12 years old, my parents took us all, and my parents, like, every, like, six months would watch the Waterboy for a while, <laughs> and my dad's not, like, a goofy guy. Um, it's weird because, yeah, people in the 90s loved Sandler. Look, yeah. I've seen I've seen the Water Boy yeah. sixty or seventy times. That's probably not 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 uh, 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 an exaggeration, Except and it's not just because I love Jerry Reed. <laughs> but uh, but I in in middle school in Louisiana history class, our the, it, it was the year that that had come out, and I remember my teacher saying like, "Not like that dumb movie, The Water Boy, making us all look stupid down here." And I'm like, oh, "That's pretty much what it's like." Well, I mean, <laughs> Ed Ogeron is essentially Ogeron. Ogeron, okay. Ogeron um, is essentially a character from The Waterboy. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I had the same story. I went opening night to see Waterboy with two friends. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, any Adam Sandler movie, I think at that point was just like essential. It was a point to, of viewing, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. if coronavirus takes boys. all of the movies away and we're just left with cameras, I, I can I can reconstruct that script from, from memory <laughs> and, and we can we can make Waterboy come back. Please. If I were going to eat a part of this snake, 
what what part of it do you think I, I, I would eat? Well, a snake don't really have pots, uh, but if I had to guess, I'd say it was the knee. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a Academy Award winner in recently Academy Award nominated Kathy Bates? Yes. Yeah. The unsinkable Molly Brown? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in the same boat as, as all you guys. And for, I mean, for reasons that I've already kind of been through, I think this is, while it's maybe not as hefty as some other PTA movies, I think it still has, if you're really looking at him as a filmmaker, it has things unique to it that he hasn't explored in in other films. And so for that alone, I think it's um, – for that alone and the fact that it's immaculately executed, I think it's got to be an Anderson A-list just to fully understand how well-rounded um, of a filmmaker he is. And uh, yeah, it's just – it's for me, it's essential viewing. So Chris, after I've – Destroyed my bathroom. Got kicked out of a restaurant with my wife. What am I going to drink at home by myself while I watch this movie? I thought I knew where I was going with this, and that path turned out to be a dead end. But uh, we got there. So initially, I was thinking, oh, chocolate pudding, maybe a chocolate stout. Uh, but I couldn't find exactly what I wanted to pair with this down that alley. So I went a little adjacent. Also, I mean, we are recording in the time of of uh self-quarantine so i feel like dark beers are just the way to go it's dark times and dark beers and they're they're um i don't know they're very i find them very comforting um and also taste kind of like uh breakfast a lot of times in a in a beautiful way um all that is to say that instead of going with a chocolate stout i have actually selected a imperial milk stout so little adjacent it's called nuke the whales which is a reference to the simpsons uh and it's brewed by eureka heights brewing company right here in houston texas uh coming in at 13 percent abv and 70 ibu so a uh, heavy hitter on all fronts uh but with it being a, a milk stout that heavy alcohol content really doesn't hit you terribly hard there's you know, it's it's dark and it's rich, but the like a lot of milk stouts, it has this nice bitter sweetness to it, I guess is the the way that I would I would describe it, that sort of it it adds a bit of a, a texture to it and a um I don't know, something that it just feels right for the ethos of Barry Egan. And that's that's why I ended up here with it, is because it it is uh, dark and big and volatile, but at the same time, there's something like as you finish it off and as you're kind of in between sips, there's something sweet and nice that, that kind of sits on your palate, sits on your lips and makes you, you know, makes you want to go back for more and, and take that ride all over again. That's Nuke the Whales from Eureka Heights Brewing Company. Punch Drunk Love is currently streaming on HBO Go and Hoop Hoopla. Is that a streaming service? Did you make that up? It's kind of like Canopy. Like you you use it through um, public library. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, HBO Go and, and Hoopla. Or, you know, you could pick it up on a stunning Criterion Collection Blu-ray disc. That's how I watched it. That's how I watched it. That's I approve. I watched it too. 
Look, and I'm going to go out on a limb on this one and say you can absolutely find it at a Hollywood video near you. <laughs> <laughs> War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. All right. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you mail us at your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around for our really red recommendations coming up next. Once again, but not before we dive into really rad recommendations. Justin, since you're our guest, I'd love to hear what you have to recommend first. All right. So I've got two and uh, I'm going to try to go through them pretty quickly. Uh, but the first would be a rom-com that is very quirky. Um, so obviously that goes with Punch Drunk Love, uh, but it is called Happy Accidents. And it is from the year 2000. It stars Marissa Tomei and Vincent D'Onofrio. And the story is basically uh, Marissa Tomei's character beats Vincent D'Onofrio uh, and he's like the perfect guy, like man of her dreams or whatever. And the only thing is he claims that he is from like a hundred years in the future where he found a picture of her in a vintage Photoshop and fell in love with her. And he's traveled back in time to be with her. And she is not sure if that's <laughs> genuine or he's crazy. Um and that's that's basically the, that's the pitch of the film right there. Please do not spoil it because that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, you have me at Vincent D'Onofrio's from a hundred years in the future, right? <laughs> Which yeah. is a whole subgenre <laughs> that Jake's really into. <laughs> but anyways, um, I really like the film a lot. It's it's very quirky, very weird. Uh, it's on Hulu. Um, so I recommend that it's directed by Brad Anderson. If anyone really knows who that is, his most famous film is the machinist. Can we throw his films in this podcast too? Oh, you can. But I mean, then we have to throw in, uh, Paul W S Anderson as well. And I'm not watching oh, a thousand. Sorry, Brad. Lichen movies. Is that, <laughs> is I've that only the, seen the rise the, of the Lichens. The third one is where underworld. Michael Sheen <laughs> in the back. It's like in the way back in, Came back yeah. to she's not even in it. Like, I regret even bringing this up. <laughs> Just <laughs> what's yeah, your uh, let me let me keep this going. Um, but yeah, Happy Accidents is on Hulu, and my other film um, is a film from the Criterion Collection. It's part of a box set of uh, films by Pierre Etax, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right because his name is French, but it's E T A I X, and uh, the film is the first feature length film in that box set. It's called The Suitor, and 
it it goes with punch with glove because it's basically about a, a guy who's very very shy and introverted and he lives in his parents house still and like is obsessed with astrology and basically what happens is his dad comes into the room and tells him like hey you know you need to get married and he at that point is like oh, okay well i guess i'll go do that and he has no idea how to like about women or being romantic or he's basically this like shy kind of clueless guy. And the, it's a very funny movie. The, the type of humor is very similar to like Jacques Tati, like Vincent Hulot's holiday or, mm. um, Buster Keaton ish, like straight faced, a lot of physical, uh, sight gags and stuff, not a ton of dialogue. Um, but it's very, very funny and, um, it's available on criterion channel. Justin, you, you are a man after Jake's heart. Yeah, no. Oh, really? Did we just become best friends? <laughs> Maybe. Because that all those all sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah have Jake. you seen any of the Pierre texts? No, but I've seen Jacques Tati. Oh, yeah, you, so you'll love him cuz Pierre texts came from like writing jokes and gags for Jacques Tati. Okay. And huh. then he broke out and started doing his own things. He did a couple of short films, one that won an Academy Award, which both of those are in that box set. Both of those are on a Criterion channel. Uh, my favorite of the short films is called Rupture. So if you just want a little like 10 minute taste of what the suitors like, watch Rupture. All of all on Criterion Channel if you've got that streaming service. It's amazing. Awesome. Awesome. These these are sound like very good uh and we're we're all looking for content right now. So thank you very much for the double feature. Yeah. No I problem. appreciate it. Not Peterson, what do you what do you have? So I've got Two things. One of them is going to be quick and a little bit more somber. Um, so the first one I'll do is That Thing You Do from filmmaker Tom Hanks. It was the first movie he ever directed. Um, and I do that because, unfortunately, as of the recording of this yesterday, uh, Adam Schleisinger passed away. He was the one of the creative forces behind the band Fountains of Wayne, but he was also the writer of the song That Thing You Do. Um, which he unfortunately lost the Oscar to, to a song from Evita, which is a fine song, but uh, That Thing You Do is, I mean, one of the best songs ever written for a movie, in my opinion. It's so, so good. Um, those first three Fountains of Wayne albums, uh, obviously their first one, which is Fountains of Wayne, Utopia Parkway, and then uh, Welcome to Interstate Managers, those three albums meant a lot to me. Um, as I was kind of finding what I cared about in music. Um, and I, I think, you know, that thing you do is a really wonderful little gem from Tom Hanks from 1997. Got a wonderful cast, got a very young Charlie Theron. He's got Steve Zahn, Tom Everett Scott, uh, Giovanni Ribisi. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we, we lost Leisinger incredibly young to, uh, COVID-19, um, obviously, as well to me, he was a Broadway composer as well, um, and I really do uh, love some of those Broadway uh, numbers as well that he wrote, um, and unfortunately, you know, he was taken way too soon, um, and hopefully, you know, his family's doing well, but uh, so there's that thing you do, a uh, wonderful film uh, in obviously listen to the fountains of Wayne really great discography. Um, and then the other film I'm going to recommend is Martin Scorsese's the aviator, which anyone who has seen the aviator is somebody who 
probably understands why. Um, <laughs> that movie begins with the Howard Hughes character being scrubbed down by his mother at a way too old of an age uh, for a mother to be scrubbing her son completely naked. I think he looks like he's like seven or eight. Um, and she says, you know, you'll never be clean, essentially. Um, there's germs everywhere, and it shapes him for the rest of his life, and it ends with him in a mirror having an obsessive-compulsive uh, breakdown as he says the way of the future. Um, it's one of those Scorsese films that I don't think it's the love uh, that it really deserves. Um, I think that it is in the top like seven or eight Scorsese's. I tried to rank his movies the other day and about had an existential crisis because <laughs> it is impossible. Um, he's just, he's such a incredibly talented, prolific and thought provoking director that most of the movies I was seeing in the top, like third of his filmography weren't necessarily the kind of quote unquote, like Scorsese films. It wasn't the gangster stuff. I mean, obviously good mm -hmm. was up there, but uh, the aviator was in my number, like five spot. I think it was. And then I gave up and said, Nope, threw my hands up. <laughs> I really do love DiCaprio in that film. Keep on Chet's wonderful. I love the aviator. It's a movie that, I've seen probably like 10 or 15 times. It's, I think it's so good. Um, and it's about a guy who there's a incredible hand-washing sequence um, that we should all kind of take to heart right now. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a movie I love. Uh, DiCaprio is fantastic. John C. Riley's great. Uh, I mean, it talked about a murder's row of, kind of actors about to pop. Adam Scott was there. Shea Wiggum's yep. there. Jude Law eats some peas off his plate. Uh, he pops up in one scene. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a movie I love. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but the Aviator's kind of top tier Scorsese for me. I think it's formally incredible and it's it, it really is a riveting experience to me. I feel like it is definitively the number two movie about Howard Hughes. Definitely, ooh, God, I forgot it's a rules don't apply thing. Man, mm, had to had to circle it back. <laughs> All right, Jake, uh, I'm in totally agreement with you on that. But uh, tell me what you got to uh, recommend because I have a feeling we're we're gonna we're gonna come to words. What I wanted to recommend. Uh, was another work where a uh, former SNL comedian uh, plays a, uh, a, a an intense character named Barry, um, playing straight more than comedic, <laughs> which is obviously Barry. Now I've recommended that before, and uh, and I am very excited to see the next season whenever that does drop. But I didn't want to just recommend the same thing. So instead, I wanted to watch another. Uh, I wanted to recommend another thing that you've probably been recommended to watch by your mom and cousin and meth dealer, uh, and that's Tiger King on Netflix, which also Boo. has a very conflict. Boo. Boo! Boo! It's a train wreck. You have to watch it. I just i I feel like it is um, it is morally dangerous, and I'll leave it at that. I. Look, I am not saying it is a perfect work by any means, but it is some must-watch TV. <laughs> Look, 
it's only because there's not a sufficiently good biker fox documentary <laughs> that I'm suggesting Tiger King. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you're looking directly at me when you say that. I, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, if if people want to watch Tiger King because they've never heard of it before, Jake, where did you where did you dig up up this gym? Netflix. It's on Netflix. Just <laughs> just look around the around the internet. Everyone is talking about this. I, I hate to just like ride the crest of the wave, but I I think that it is it is very much something that will have your your quarantined house brought together in front of the TV like it was the three channel days, and you're watching the one thing. That's worth watching because the other two channels are Lawrence Welk and whatever else is terrible. You got an eyebrow ring yet? <laughs> I, I can't get my ears pierced right now six, seven times in a row. All right. Well, we can we can agree to disagree, Jake. But uh, I'm I'm going to make my recommendation short and sweet because it's actually it's a film that I haven't watched in a while. But watching Punch Drunk Love again this time. I found myself thinking about it again and again, and so which has driven me to want to pull the Blu-ray off my shelf and uh, watch it again. And that is the 1931 Charlie Chaplin film City Lights. Uh, and at, I mean, it's a pretty basic sort of film. Charlie Chaplin plays his iconic tramp character, and uh, he falls in love with a. I believe blind girl who sells flowers. Is that correct? That is correct. It's just a very um, kind of heartwarming. It's, I mean, it's Buster Keaton is my guy as far as the silent era, the big silent era comedy guys. But there's something to be said about the pathos that Chaplin brings. And I think it's on full display here. And I just kept thinking about that character with Barry and the way that, you know, he's kind of down on his luck a little bit, or maybe not even down on his luck, but just in a rut. But he's always kind of in this moment looking forward and he's building up. And I, I feel like that's what uh, Chaplin did time and time again with the tramp. But as far as like a romantic uh, storyline, none is better than City Lights, in my opinion. Um, just kind of heartwarming and tragic and beautiful. And that sort of, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the bigger than life musical that, uh, that PTA is making homage to, but even before that, that was a thing. Like it just, when this movie is over, it just all feels right and like a warm comforting hug hopefully you've seen it check it out again it's on criterion channel it's on canopy there's a great criterion blu-ray um it's it's certainly worth your time in this uh weird moment of looking for you know escape that's my favorite film ending scene of all yes. time is city lights it's so good incredible i'm partial to when bobby boucher's dad drives back up to try to crash <laughs> the wedding you know the last scene of it's me, dummy. <laughs> and that's a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight join us next time for a brand new episode of the magnificent andersons our ongoing exploration of the work of two american auteurs paul thomas anderson and wes anderson 
Up next is Wes's attempt at an epic adventure film on the high seas, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, better yet, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at jakerg 23 And I'm Peterson W. Hill. And I am at WSAM Pod. Justin, if people want to find you on the interwebs, uh, could you tell our lovely listeners how they could do that? Sure. You can find me personally on Twitter at Justin the Middle or on Instagram at mphotosholiday, which is a nod to Jacques Tati uh, for the Jacques Tati fans listening right now. <laughs> and uh, you can follow my podcast, which is a casual cinecast uh, on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at casual cinecast. And just briefly what we do on the show. Typically, we uh, alternate weeks every every week will or every other week will review like a film that's in theaters. And then the next week we'll review a film from the Criterion Collection. Um, currently, because of COVID-19 and all the theaters closing, we're doing all Criterion films all the time every uh, week for the foreseeable future. Uh, so if you want your Criterion fix, go check us out at Casual Cinecast. Do y'all just release an episode on Hunger? We did, yeah, yeah. We just released an episode on Stephen Queen's Hunger, and we've Sullivan's Travels. Sullivan's Travels, yeah. I love it. Um, for for a little bit more lighthearted in this uh, time we're in, as compared to Steve McQueen's Hunger, <laughs> but with a little sex. Yes, always a little sex. <laughs> of course. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Smokey in the Mirror for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at SmokeyInTheMirror.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Shut, 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 shut up. This really looks like Hawaii. That's that. Get ready for our next episode when I claim Daniel Plainview is Flash Gordon. <laughs> PTA is just making comic book movies out here just on another level. Martin Scorsese is rolling in his quarantine. <laughs> Side note, I went in a uh, in a boudin shop in Crot Springs, Louisiana, and I, I walked up to the counter and she was like, you look famous. And I was like, nope. And she's like, are you, you're that guy. And I was like, I don't think I am. And she's like, you're. It's Giovanni Rabisi. 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 I was like, not me. And I don't really remember who that person is. So I had to like go out in my car and Google him. And I was like, I don't think I look like that guy. It wasn't a compliment. Probably the only time we'll ever say Giovanni Rabisi twice in one episode. (laughs)